Well, I'm so thankful for my mom and dad. Um, they, they were far from perfect, certainly, like, like any parent, and yet I always felt safe and, and loved. And, and I, can, I can certainly remember plenty of times uh, being disciplined by them. And I can still remember very clearly the very first time they caught me in a lie. Uh, or there was, there was that moment uh, when I thought it'd be fun to try out the new word I'd learned on television. <laughs> Didn't go so good. Um, or or I, I remember, um, yeah, I mean, this, this time when I burned down part of our neighbor's field. You know, good times, right? Um, or just even broadly, right, times in which I, I endangered myself or flat out rejected their authority, and they disciplined me. And kids, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You know what this is like. You know what it feels like. You've experienced it. And all of us here, to some extent, right, we, re- we remember. Uh, I mean, regardless of, of how we were brought up, I mean, it's all different for all of us. But many of us have these, these memories. We, we know what it's like. And it hurts, doesn't it? I mean, no matter what form of discipline takes, it, it hurts us. And yet when done out of love, truly out of love, I mean, I'm so thankful my parents loved me enough to correct me, to train me, to, to shape me, to discipline me into, you know, who I, who I am, right? We're, we're shaped by that. So does God do the same thing to us? Does he? Does he, as our father, right? That's, that's what we, we call him, father. As our father, does he ever reach down and discipline us? A little spanking, a bit of a timeout, a good old-fashioned grounding. Does our God ever do that to us? One, one of my favorite books is A, a Severe Mercy uh, by a guy named Sheldon Van Alken. Um, it was written quite a, quite a few years ago. We've got a picture of it here just to kind of give a little picture of who they are. Uh, it's essentially, it's the, the true story uh, Sheldon is writing, but the true story of, of him and uh, the love of his life, his wife, a woman named Davy. Uh, and, and the book, I mean, it's, it's beautifully written, beautifully told, uh, but essentially in the be- beginning stages of the relationship, they build everything upon each other, right? They are absolutely enraptured by their love. Uh, and really in many like sort of deliberate ways, they make their home into sort of a, a temple to themselves, to their, to their usness. I mean, they actually make a vow never to experience anything that they cannot share together. And then, Davy becomes a Christian, his wife. Now, Sheldon, he, he follows suit, but with, with less interest, but Davy, she, she comes alive in her, her new faith. She still loves her husband. In fact, she probably loves him even more now as a result of her faith. And yet she also has this new and better love, this God who made her. And over time, years really, Sheldon begins to resent her for it. And by his own confession in the book, he was on a path to either hate Davy, hate God, or hate both. And then at the age of 40, full of life and love and faith, Davy dies. And here's what he writes in the book. It was death, Davy's death, 
that was the severe mercy. That death so full of suffering for us both, suffering that still overwhelms my life, was yet a severe mercy. A mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love. Her death, an act of God's mercy? Severe, yes. Painful, no doubt. But merciful, loving? That's what he says. For it was in her death that he was able to move beyond his his hate and actually discover that the same kind of love for his God that that Davy had had. It changed everything about his life and in many ways had a good impact. So does God work like that? Is his mercy ever severe? Does, does he allow or, or even put things into our lives that, that are hard, that, that hurt us, that keep us awake at night for our own good? Does he? Well, I think many of us here would probably say, yeah, he does. I mean, we just heard those words read from, from Hebrews, right? It says very, very clearly that our God is a father who disciplines us like kids. So I think many of us would say, yeah, God does act like that. You know that? I'm not sure that many of us actually live like that, right? Actually, we feel that in the midst of our, of our pain or difficulty. I, I think instead, whether, you, whether you're a Christian or not, you know, whatever has brought you here this morning, I think in, instead of going in that direction, when, when suffering happens, when hardship, trials, whatever you want to call it, happens to us, I think we tend to go in one of two other directions. I, I think on the one hand, one extreme, uh, we, we sort of expect if God is involved at all, it's to punish us, Right? He's just sort of waiting to smite us. Um, you know, this is a kind of an example, right? Um, I've shown this plenty of times, but it sums it up perfectly, right? That we just, that God is sort of waiting for us to mess up so he can hit the smite button. And, and discipline or, or God's involvement and hardship in our life is, is more like punishment rather than being corrective. So that, that's, that's one extreme. Uh, the other extreme, though, on the other side, which, which is probably the camp that I'd be more likely to fall in, probably the camp that most of us are more likely to fall in, is, is to, when bad things happen, is really just not to think that much about God at all. Anyway. I mean, not that he's not there, right? Or maybe we'll, we'll say a prayer, but to think of him actually sort of involved in our daily lives so intimately that he knows, not just knows, but is engaged in our suffering. I think most of us, if we're honest live more like practical deists. You know, God is there, but he's just, he's sort of distant. He's out there somewhere, yeah, maybe sort of guiding the universe, and we fail to imagine that he just might be up to something, even in our pain. Now listen, don't don't miss this, because there, there is much that we do not understand about how and why we suffer. And, and don't, don't miss this. I mean, suffering is, is way more mysterious than sometimes we Christians like to think. We don't always know where God is or what he's up to. But according to Hebrews, and we saw this, this last week, right, that, that life is a race, not a vacation. And last week, we focused on our role as we run, our role. That was last week. Uh, Next week, we'll talk about the community's role in our training. That's really all of what chapter 12 is about, this this race that we talked about last week. But this week, it's about specifically God's role 
as a loving father who disciplines his children for our good. And so much so that, that if there's one thing you remember from our time together this morning, if there's one thing that you take home with you, I hope it's this. It is better to be disciplined by God than satisfied by anything else. It is better to be disciplined by God than satisfied by anything else. Come on, really? Discipline better than satisfaction? It's shocking, isn't it? We've got some work to do, don't we, this morning. And we're going to take these verses in, in four sections. Four sections. What discipline is and isn't. What discipline means and can't mean. What discipline is for. And finally, why discipline is better. So first... What discipline is and isn't. Because we've, we've got to keep in mind, right, that these words, Hebrews, they were originally preached to a group of uh, early Christians, right, struggling to, to hold on to the belief that Jesus is actually better. And these, these Christians, right, 2000, they're being persecuted for their faith. And the hardships that they're experiencing are only getting worse. And so he says to them, knowing that that's their experience. Verse 5, let's start there. He says to them, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Well, here in, in those words... He's, he's quoting Proverbs 3, which, which clearly says that, yes, God does discipline us. But I find it so interesting that the author of Hebrews, in quoting that, he refers to that, that verse, right, as an exhortation, as, as a word of hope. That, yes, God does discipline us, but it's meant as, a, as an encouragement. And that, that's, that's how he begins it. It's meant to encourage us. You've got to start there. And, and you see this word for discipline in the Bible. It's always forward-looking, and it is both corrective and instructive. Often when we, when we use the word discipline, right, we only think of the corrective side, right? That it's correcting bad behavior. But biblically, it's, it's much broader than that. It is correcting bad behavior as well as instructing and planning for, for good behavior. In fact, that same word there translated as discipline in other contexts is simply translated as training that God trains the one he loves. And, and either way, right? I mean, sometimes God disciplines or trains us with gentle nudges. Sometimes he does so with a firm hand. But either way, discipline is about training. That's what, that's what discipline is. Well, here's what it isn't. If you are a believer... And you encounter hardship, as, as all of us do. The one thing that we know that's not happening in that moment is that God is punishing you. It can't be that. 
Because Jesus, if, if you trust him, right, if you're, if you're one of his, it's very clear in the Bible that, that God has no anger, no wrath left for you. That all, all of the punishment that we deserve for all of our sins, Jesus took all of that. So the one thing it can never be is God's punishment. That's why, that's why Paul says in Romans, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus took all of it from us. So it's, it's, it's never God's wrath. It's never out of anger. God never will punish his children. But he will discipline. So here's a good question. Is God disciplining us in the, the sense of correcting us, right, for bad behavior, kind of like we, we usually think of it? Is he disciplining us every time something bad happens? No. No, I mean, just look at the story of Job, right? It's, it's very clear, right? That, I think that's part of the reason that whole book is in the Bible is to show that, no, Job was a righteous man and still suffered terribly. And there are lots of reasons that you and I suffer in a world as broken as ours. So we, we don't always know. So, so, so Nathan, maybe, maybe you're thinking this. How do, how do I know if God is disciplining me? Or, or, or if I'm just suffering, you know, more, more randomly? I'm not sure that you can know, honestly. At least not with absolute certainty. I mean, sure, if there's a direct consequence for your sin, you steal and now you're in jail, uh, you can kind of put those kind of things together. And yet, for most hardship in our life, I don't think we can always know exactly what God is up to. There's so much mystery around pain and suffering. And yet, if we understand discipline as training, both positive and negative, what we can be certain of is that in all things, God is always training us to run better. That in all things, good, bad, and ugly, God is always training us to run better. That's why it says in in verse 7, of, of this text, and I think, I think uh, the NIV makes it a little bit clearer. It says, endure hardship as discipline. It doesn't say every hardship is discipline, but endure every hardship as if it is discipline, as if it is God's training in your life. So here's the first bit of application. When, when trials come, instead of just bearing them, or just trying to run away from them, or making quick assumptions about them, maybe a better place to start would be by simply asking God, what are you up to? God, what are you up to? Now, he may not tell you. In fact, I kind of doubt that he will. That's not the point. But the question repositions us before God to be trained by whatever it is whatever he's doing. I mean, to go ahead and ask, God, are, are you correcting me? Did I do something wrong? Is there something that you want to sort of guide me back onto, onto the right path? Or, or are you simply training me? Is this just a moment for me to, to, to learn, to grow, to draw near? Either way, don't waste your pain. God is always teaching us to run with endurance. And I think there's, there's two ways that we fail to do this. Two, two ways that we, we waste our pain. One is by making it heavier uh, than it really is or than it needs to be, and the other is by making it lighter. 
than it really is. And I think that's what he's talking about here when he quotes verse 5. He says, right, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. We try to make it lighter, right? We brush it off or we we assume that God is not involved and we ignore it. We we think of suffering as, as purely meaningless in our lives, that hardship is just something we have to endure. And when we do that, we unintentionally refuse to be trained by it. Don't take it lightly, he's saying. When terrible things happen, don't take it lightly. Or we go to the other extreme, we just make it, we make it heavier than it needs to be. And I think that's where he goes. He says, nor be weary when reproved by him. And we wrongly assume that God is punishing us out of anger rather than disciplining us out of love. And either way, we, we waste it. We waste an opportunity for God to continue to shape us into the people he longs for us to be. Don't make assumptions about your struggle. And yet at the same time, watch to see how God is at work. He's always up to something. And it is better to be disciplined by him than satisfied by anything else. Okay, so discipline is training, not punishment. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, it's it's pretty clear here, right? It means we're sons. It means we're daughters. It means that we, we belong in, in his family. Look, look what he says, right? Verse 7, God is treating you as sons and daughters. For, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And yet so often, right, we say, God, where, where are you in this? God, God, if you, if you loved me, if you cared for me, then I, I wouldn't be in this situation. I mean, how many of us have said, of course we've said that, we've thought that. But what is he saying here? I mean, that according to this, God's discipline cannot mean that he's absent. It cannot mean that he doesn't care. I mean, what, what he's saying here is the exact opposite, that God's discipline in your life is evidence of your relationship with him. It, it's proof that he loves us. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily feel like it, right? And we'll, we'll get to that. But that, that's what he's saying. If you, if you want evidence of God's love, then here's one of them, clearly spelled out for us. It's his discipline. Only the loved are disciplined. Only those who belong have any hope that the pain we encounter might possibly mean something more. And we see that in our homes, don't we? I mean, kids, you probably hear your parents over and over again. And we heard it from our parents. Many of us did at least. Something like, you know, we discipline you because we love you. Or we discipline you because we think it's, it's best for you, because we want what's best for you. I mean, we say it over and over. I mean, I, I get sick of saying it. And frankly, I, I hate disciplining my kids. It's hard. And the pain goes both ways. And I, I think in many ways, that's why many parents... We don't discipline our kids because it it is so hard. It is so painful. And yet, what kind of father would I be if I didn't care if my kids made lousy choices? What kind of father would I be if I didn't teach them that life has consequences and some of them are really scary and painful? What kind of father would I be if I didn't care if they self-destruct their own lives, right? Instead of of gently, lovingly doing anything in my power to, to train them to embrace a more flourishing life. What kind of dad would I be? And what kind of God would he be? If he just 
sat on his hands and watched the people that he created, right? We are his. We belong to him. He made us for himself to flourish and to know flourishing and to love and to be loved. If he just sat on his hands watching us destroy ourselves, each other, and our world, what kind of God would he be? Thank God for his discipline. Thank thank God that he cares enough to train us. Thank God for hard things. Thank God. Right? I mean, this is not easy stuff to hear, right? As you know, I'm working on this, studying this. I mean, this is hard stuff. This this doesn't come naturally for any of us. It just seems too hard. So here's another step. When life gives you trouble, ask him, God, would you help me to recognize your love? Help me to see it, because I can't see it, right? In those moments when it's, when it's hard and it's painful, help me just, God, just give me a glimpse. Help me to see that you, that you love me even in the midst of all this. And just think about that. How many times do we say to ourselves, you know, God, if, if I could just see you, if I could just experience you, if I could just feel your love, right? We long for that, and yet here it is. Maybe instead we should spend more time praying that God would discipline us. Maybe that's the way we can feel his love. I mean, let me give an example for that. If you're, if you're trapped in sin, whatever, whatever it is, and you, you just you cannot seem to even begin to see your way out, you feel trapped. Maybe it's, it's pornography, an illicit relationship. Maybe alcoholism or embezzlement. Kids, maybe it's, it's cheating at school. And you know that it's wrong, but you feel stuck and you are hiding alone in the midst of that. Try this. Pray that you'd get caught. What? Pray that you get caught. Pray that your wife would walk in. Pray that you'd get audited. Pray that your boss would smell it on your breath. Pray that your teacher would catch you. Pray that you'd get caught. Better to experience those consequences meant to shape us, to grow us, to move us along than end up wallowing in our sin far from God. Or, or, or as a parent, another example, very similar. Right? As they get older, I want to I get in the habit of praying for my kids. I mean, I already pray for them, but specifically pray. Um, and this, this sounds cruel, but I mean it absolutely out of love, out of, out of grace. But to begin praying, God, be merciful to them, okay? God, please be merciful. But don't let them get away with it. Whatever it is, God, may their sins always find them out. It seems cruel, doesn't it? But I think it's love. Or pray, maybe, maybe another example. Pray that in, in your life, whatever it is, that, that God would do whatever it takes to get your attention. No matter what it is. Even a severe mercy. Like, like the old hymn, for example. It goes, oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, the idea there, should I ever be tempted to quit, to give up on God, on Jesus? Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. God, take my life before I walk away from you. 
before I, I fall so far into sin that I never come back. Do whatever it takes to show me that you love me. And I know we're all like, Nathan has officially lost his mind, right? Because these sounds like the worst ideas ever, right? Pray you get caught. Pray that you die first. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds horrible. And yet, the reason we feel that way, the reason we feel like this is completely ridiculous and completely far-fetched, and, and many of us will never do any of these things, not, not truly and mean it, because I don't take my sins that seriously. I really don't. They're not that big of a deal, right? They're just, they're just fine. I, God can kind of sort of pat me on the back and I can go about my way. It, this only makes sense. Any of this, it only makes sense. God's discipline only makes sense if you actually believe that your sins, your sins, the stuff in your life, the junk that you deal with has the power to destroy you, has the power to destroy the people that you love the most, and has the power to destroy you and them forever. Only then will we say, yes, God, discipline me. Even if it hurts, only if we believe that sin is actually that ugly. I mean, what, what is more loving than a God who yanks us out of the fire, even if there is a little bit of whiplash? God, help me to recognize your love. So discipline is training. Discipline means that we're loved. But what's it for? Whether God is correcting us or not, whether that's the role that's happening, the end goal is the same. Verse 10. For they, our our earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And he's a realist, right? He knows that our our parents doing their best, right? They They don't do always the best. He knows that. He points that out, right? We, we as parents, we discipline as we think is best, but God always disciplines for our good. For our good, for our growth, for, for our, our holiness. And without holiness, he's just going to say this in a few verses later, he's going to without holiness, it is impossible to see God. It's impossible to, to be in this, this relationship. Now, I think when we, when we hear the word holiness, I mean, it just doesn't sound like something we even want to begin with, right? It's like, well, great, you know, he's making us holy. That sounds fun. We think, we think holier than thou, right? We either, we either put it in a camp of something we don't really want or that we just feel is completely unattainable anyway, even if it is desirable. But maybe, maybe think instead, I think a better, a better word so often is the, this idea of wholeness. That's, that's really what he's talking about. Even this idea of holiness, wholeness, they, they go together um, hand in hand. Wholeness is, is life back in the Garden of Eden, before everything fell apart, holiness is a restoration of the life that we were created for. It's who we were always meant to be. I mean, who doesn't want to be whole? And our God promises to do whatever it takes to make you into the person that you've always been meant to be. Even if it hurts. I love how C.S. Lewis summarizes this. He wrote, God whispers to us in our pain and our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so in those moments of difficulty, ask God, how do I need to grow? 
How do I need to enter more into, into this holiness? How can whatever I'm, I'm going through, how can it make me holy? Is it, is it patience in the midst of my loneliness? Is it sacrifice in my difficult marriage? Is it trust in the midst of difficult news or, or humility through failure, dependence through disappointment, endurance through depression? Or maybe it's none of these. Maybe it's simply an opportunity for us to draw near. Makes me think of our dear friend Farshid. As a church, we prayed for Farshid for the last couple of years. Um, he's one of our ministry partners uh, serving the church in Iran, um, but he's, he's currently serving a six-year uh, prison sentence for being a pastor. He's suffering horrible persecution uh, for the sake of Christ. In fact, just a couple week, weekends ago, Easter weekend, guards uh, busted into his cell and crushed his foot for no reason, just shattered it. All because he has chosen to follow Jesus with his life and to tell others about him. And so here, here's an individual, right, suffering for good, suffering that many of us can't even hardly imagine. He's not being disciplined in the sense of, of corrected, but he is, he is being trained. And he's written a poem since being there. Um, the poem that he wrote has written while in prison. Let me read part of it for us. It's been translated, so it might be a little bit choppy here. But he says, My wilderness is painful but lovely. My wilderness is like an endless road, but short compared to eternity. My wilderness is lonely, but I'm not alone. My beloved is with me. My wilderness is dangerous, but safe because I dwell between his shoulders. So I love my wilderness because it takes me to the deeper part of you, Lord, and no one can separate me from your arms forever. Written from prison, separated from his family, but I think that's what he's saying in the poem there, right? He's saying better to be trained by God. Better to be in a wilderness with God than satisfied by anything else. Let's keep praying for him, for his wife, for his young kids, as he continues to, to deal with this. And listen, I, I, I said it before, I want to I say it again. God may not be disciplining you, okay? In the sense of correcting you for something you've done wrong. I mean, just like in this ancient church, right, being persecuted for following Jesus, just like Farshid. And yet, regardless, God is always training us. So always ask, God, how do I need to grow? And if all this is true, then we better actually believe that it's better, right? I mean, that's the hang-up here at the end. Like, we can, we can say all this, though. We can believe it all. But we have to actually believe that it is better to be disciplined by God than satisfied by anything else. Better than our sins, better than our comfort and ease. But why? I mean, how, how can we possibly say that? Because I'm not saying that it doesn't hurt. Right? Neither, neither does the author here. And sometimes being a Christian, sometimes it hurts more. I mean, think about Farshid, right? How much easier it would be if he was just a Muslim like most everybody else in Iran. Life would be so much easier for him if Jesus wasn't in his, in his life. And hardship hurts us. That's what, he, that's what he says in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline, all training seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You hear that? God never minimizes our pain. 
He never just sweeps it under the rug. He never tells us to get over, over it. And I, honestly, I can't think of any other religion that, that is as realistic and hopeful at the same time about the pain and suffering that we experience in our world. I mean, just think about it, right? I mean, Islam, for example, right? Allah doesn't really care all that much for his followers. But you get a consolation prize, right? Forty virgins. Or, or in, in Buddhism, right? The suffering is, is, it doesn't really exist, right? And the goal is sort of to, to lose yourself so that you can lose suffering. That's, that's sort of how they treat suffering. Even naturalism, right? Which really says that suffering is pointless. In fact, how can you even call it suffering, right? In a meaningless world. But Christianity? Jesus? God sees our pain in this story. He sees it and he weeps with us. And he actually comes down to experience that pain with us. That's what we see with Jesus. Our God actually felt it. And God sees your pain and he promises to make something beautiful out of it. Not, not a mere consolation prize, not, not merely sort of a, a, a heaven of, of sorts, but actual redemption. A restoration of whatever was lost. For only our God has suffered. Only, only him, Jesus, has felt what we feel. And, and that's, that's how these words began, right? If we go back to where we started in chapter 12. In verse 3, he said, consider him. This is how we began. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And our God is not, he's not just distant looking down. He's not just sort of absent trying to vaguely, you know, guide us along. Our God entered this world and suffered with us. Jesus knows. And he died and rose again, so the pain that we experience will not have the last word. So he could promise to make it, whatever it is in your life, that he would promise to make it into something beautiful. He promises to make it into something beautiful. To make us into something beautiful through faith in him. And it's only here. It's only, it's only here. It's only because of Jesus. It's only because of what he has done through his death and resurrection that I could possibly say, that any of us could possibly say, I would rather be disciplined by God than satisfied by anything else. So ask, God, how can I learn to trust? That's, what, that's always what it comes down to, isn't it? Especially in hardship. It always comes down to trust. In the, in the midst of, of heartache, frustration, fear, some of you are in it right now. Some of you, it's down the road. Some of you have been there. You, you, know, you know what this is like. To ask, how can I learn to actually believe that his discipline, his training, that it's actually better? Because pain always makes you look somewhere, right? And I think it always makes you look at someone, too, right? Uh, you can look inward. Look at, look at yourself, right? You can, you can respond to your pain with kind of a woe-is-me attitude or even with pride, right? Some of us, we have pride in our pain. Nobody knows what I feel, right? And we alienate ourselves from others. So we can look inward or we can look outward and blame. We do that pretty good, right? We blame our parents, blame our kids, blame our spouse, our, our roommate, our ex-boyfriend, our boss, our doctors, whatever. We love to blame and we grow bitter. Well, the other option is to, to look upward, 
to consider him who endured. To consider him who suffered unjustly. He deserved none of it, but willingly took our place. For he knows what you feel. He knows how you hurt. And if you're his, he promises to bring you through. God, how can I learn to trust you? Well, I've, sh- I've shared with you before how much I've loved reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids. Um, just love it, okay? We just finished the, the seventh book recently, and so it's been on my mind. I mean, if you don't know the stories, that's okay. They're these old fantasy stories, right? Uh, written by this guy, uh, a former, you know, Oxford, Cambridge professor, a former atheist who became a Christian and, uh, as an adult. Uh, his name was C.S. Lewis. Uh, he's the guy that I quoted just a few minutes ago about pain being God's megaphone in our life. Um, a brilliant thinker, but they're just, they're fantasy kid stories. And even if you don't know anything about the plot, the, the one thing that's important to keep in mind is that Aslan, right, the, the great lion, for those of you who don't know, he's, he's there to represent Jesus. That's his explicit role in those, in those stories. Well, this week as I, as I studied and wrote and all that, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about one of the books in particular, The Horse and His Boy. It's kind of right there, sort of in the middle. Um, it's, Anyway, it's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great story, uh, but it's, it's largely about the mystery of pain and suffering in a world as broken as ours, which probably seems a little bit heavy for a kid's book, right? Um, but he pulls it off. It's, it's, it's really beautiful, and, and towards the end of the book, all of the, the heroes are uh, meeting Aslan for the first time, right? This great lion, right? The Christ figure in the stories, and they're explaining that all of the pain and difficulty and fear Aslan is explaining to them, that it's... It's all been really at his hand. That he's, he's been the one guiding and shaping their journey, and he's done it through hardship and pain and fear. And he, he explains that to them. And, and then Aslan meets Quinn, the horse. He's one of, one of the best characters in the whole series. And so picture this, this horse, right, and lion meeting for the first time. What horse wouldn't be terrified in that situation? And here's what it says. Then Huen, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. Honestly, in the seven books, that might be my favorite sentence in the entire series. I'd rather be eaten by you and fed by anyone else, because I love to be fed, right? Feed me, right? Not just food, but satisfaction, and pleasure, and leisure, and, and all these things, power, and money, all of it, that I just want to gather up and grow. I love to be fed. And here she says in this moment, before her king, right? The one who made Narnia, her creator, I'd rather be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. And it's only if we understand who this God is, and what he's actually trying to accomplish in our lives for our good and for his glory, it's only then that we can say, I'd rather be disciplined by God than satisfied by anything else. And friends, there's only one way we can say that. Only if you believe that he can be trusted. Only if you believe that his way of life is actually better than the one that we choose so often. Only if you believe that Jesus is actually worth it.